Good evening, and welcome to User-Friendly Games. I'm your host, Bill Snodgrass. I know it's been a while since my last episode. Of course, the first episode, I guess, since this will be the second one. But, like I said on our show for July 11th, 2017, I was going to go into a little bit more depth into the Valkyria Chronicles and Valkyria Revolution. See what else we cover today. Remember, you can look us up at userfriendlyshow.com. Check us out at one user friendly on Facebook and Twitter. That's number one user friendly. Or you can bug me at Gothmoogle on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be right back. And welcome back. So Valkyria Chronicles is a game that probably slipped under a lot of people's radars. I know it slipped under mine. I was only made aware of it last year. Can't even remember how exactly, but I know I fell in love with it shortly after getting it on Steam. Now the game was made in 2008 for PS3, and then was re-updated for Steam on Windows PCs, and later released as a updated version, you know, better graphics and such for the PlayStation 4 last year. Now I have the Steam edition, which is very well done comes with all the DLC, and was a game that immediately caught my heart as soon as I started playing it. Now, of course, I enjoy a good war movie, good war story, play some war games myself, but I think what caught me most was the aesthetics, the beautiful backgrounds, the beautiful design work, and the way that the graphics engine handled that. That is to say, they were using a system called Canvas that they were using, which made the entire game look like a painting or sketch, or various things. The way that they handled it started out as a sketch and then added colors, things like that. It was very artistically well done. In fact, the whole of the story was handled in a manner of history books and paintings and things like that. Now, of course, the cutscenes and all that also had full CGI movement. I'm pretty sure, like I said, it must have had some motion capture because it looked very natural. That being said, I really can't complain too much about the game. Sure, there was a learning curve, and sometimes there was things that just didn't work out the way you'd hoped. It is a strategy game, after all. Now, you wouldn't think that a third-person view game could be strategy, but you're switching between characters. Now, you could have, you know, one to a number of characters on the screen, and based on turns and how many deployments you have for that mission. And, of course, one of the great things, too, is if you like tanks like I do, you can also use a tank in the game, or two at a certain stage, not to give it away. But, hey, you look up any kind of art, you can find all the characters in that pretty easily. That's another statement. For being a one about a militia, military, they did very well with the costume design. Sure, there's some questionable things, you know, like skirts in the battlefield, but what can we do? It's a Japanese game, and if you throw a little bit of that out, you can have a really good game. Now one of the big things here is that they handled a lot of different interpersonal issues, issues in the world. They really brought to life the whole of it. The Kingdom of Gallia, the struggles of its people, its history, its discourse, its failings. There are racism, there is just different things that are brought up within the game and the mechanics, and of course even some of that goes in further as there's personality traits that give people, or your characters, abilities based upon certain things. One of my favorite characters, which I never really used much, was a scout, and she had the problem of being a pacifist. So while she was perfectly great as a scout and a healer, she would fail me at you shooting her gun at the enemy, you know? So couldn't really use her very much in that regard, but you had others that came in. You had the main characters, such as Rosie, who hated Darsons, 
which is a race of migratory people because their homeland was destroyed. And there was all this history and propaganda about what happened that created a stigma towards these people and a bit of racism. So there is part of this and the story that develops and who and what and why each character acts the way they do. The relationships they build within, these develop through the game, through the story. It is much more in-depth than many games I have played recently, such as the successor which recently came out here in America, the Valkyria Revolution. Now I'll get to that in the next segment, because I want to stick with Valkyria Chronicles. So the game mechanics is that it is a strategy-based game. You have so much movement, you can make certain actions, throw grenades, use magic, which is actually a form of alchemy, as they call it, with ragnite, a mineral that's a mythological mineral in the game. Certain things like that. You have mysterious, supernatural-powered Valkyria, which is one of the main enemies, and you understand that kind of story. You get a lot of lore, a lot of history that develops and builds with this game as to why things are the way they are. Now, continuing further, this battle system, it's fluid, it works very well, you do have to strategize, you have to know your characters, you have to know their abilities, and do certain things. It is forgiving, but some missions can be very, very punishing if you don't know what you're doing. But hey, that all works out. Now, again, there is one segment in there I don't want to give away any spoilers, but a character dies, and of course this is one of those games like Final Fantasy VII where it's like, okay, we've resurrected people a hundred times with the phoenix down, but this one time they're not going to make it? What what the heck is going on here? You know, great for story, great for that. You just have to ignore the fact that your characters get shot all the time. So, continuing on, it's a beautiful art style, the gameplay is fantastic. I can't really remember too many issues I ran into with it. It played quite fluidly for me, and I always enjoyed it. It was one of those very few games that I sat down and played from beginning to end, pretty much 100% completion, uh, S rank on every mission, that kind of thing, just because even though you were playing the same mission over again, there was no real push to be monotonous. It wasn't boring to do so. Even in the EX missions where I was going through, and there are little challenges, just to be clear on it, I was going through to get better weaponry for my characters. Sure, I did some of them, you know, 10, 12 times, but that's neither here nor there. It was simple, it was easy. Once you understood the mechanics of those, it was very fluid. You didn't feel like it was just getting boring and working the same thing over and over and over again. Now, downsides, I really can't think of many. It's played through. I mean, there was probably a few things, you know, weird motion thing or a glitch somewhere. I'm sure there had to have been. Not every game's perfect. But as far as games that go and talk about war and humanity from a very interesting perspective and artistic style, I would say that Valkyria Chronicles is probably one of the better games I've ever played. So if you're looking for something to pick up that's an older game, pick it up on Steam, play it with a controller, seems to help, check out Valkyria Chronicles. We'll be right back where I talk about Valkyria Revolution. Welcome back. So we just covered Valkyria Chronicles. Now to get on to the most recent one, Valkyria Revolution. 
which came out on PlayStation 4 on June 27th. That day they also released two sets of DLC, all of it free. Download that same day as it came out. And as I said before on the show, they have a series of it coming out that you can look up the release dates and what's going to be included. Now, as I've talked about previously, what Valkyria Chronicles has in store. Valkyria Revolution left me feeling that they had really traveled off course from what they had created with Valkyria Chronicles. And that is to say that what I truly loved in Valkyria Chronicles, between the aesthetic, the combat system, the mechanics, the great storyline, character development, none of that was really in Valkyria Revolution. Everything seemed either excessively complicated, such as the weapons upgrading system, or the lack of tutorial for much of anything that gave much detail. I, for one, went through three or four days of gameplay without realizing the directional pad did more than... Well, I wasn't actually sure the directional pad actually did anything. That should be a statement on its own. But being able to change characters mid-battle to suit needs instead of just giving orders from one character is definitely a lot better thing. Now, of course, recently, a couple months back, a similar game, Dragon Quest Heroes 2, was released. Now, I've only had the chance to play the demo of that game, and while the battle systems are very similar, reminiscent of, as I stated, the Dynasty Warriors games, I couldn't help but feel that this battle system was bloated and heavy. First, there is a active time bar. Those of you who are familiar with Final Fantasy will remember the ATV system. Now, this is works in conjunction with the overall status and morale of the military which is shown at the top of the screen by a blue and red bar. The higher the blue section is, the faster your action bar fills up, to the point where if you have filled the, the blue bar, you don't have to wait. You can simply mash the X button and do your attacks. Now, of course, there's no variation, no comboing. You just hit X, and whatever direction, and hopefully it's towards your enemy you were facing or not facing, Using the lock-on system was also kind of a pain if you were just simply attacking groups of enemies. You would just swing away three times and hope you were in the right direction and didn't get it, have a problem. Of course, this didn't seem to be too much of a problem at first. It was in later battles where things were much tougher, certain boss battles, where having to wait around for the bar to fill, even though it only took a few seconds, was quite a problem. Many a time I would be just standing around, running around in a circle, while enemies stared at me blankly, waiting to attack. It locked up the system. Now, of course, there was a base capturing system similar to Valkyria Chronicles, where you would eliminate a certain number of enemies, and then a base would open up, giving you resupplies, things like that. It did not have nearly the same advantage as the Valkyria Chronicles counterparts, but it existed. However, every time you defeated it, instead of just putting a message up on the screen saying you've taken it, you would have to go through a very short 15-second cutscene in a box to tell you. So you'd be in the middle of attacking enemies, and you'd just hit the right one to clear out a group instead of the reinforcements that they sent in, and boom, here's a screen locking up everything, and then you'd come back disoriented, all kinds of problems that way. Now, of course, this probably isn't that big of a deal for some people. Maybe they're used to it. I found it to be very clunky. It bothered the heck out of me. The upgrading system requires you to sacrifice Ragnite, which is in great supply. 
which is also a sad part because you never get exactly what you want to be using for spells, so you have to use all this extra junk stuff. And the system is not very detailed on how it all functions. They don't tell you that certain Ragnite pieces, even though they may be a slightly lower rank, may have other benefits that will make the lesser rank more valuable than the top rank of that specific Ragnite, such as the Wind Ragnite Storm Blast or such variants. There are four elements, five if you can count the light ones, that are available. Each one has different ones for different classes within the game. There are different classes of the soldiers you're using in the Vanergand unit. As I said before, the canvas system was used again, but the artistic direction and things like that, while beautiful, I will give it kudos for looking beautiful, for bringing forth that world in the still imagery, especially those of the cities and castles. It left a lot to be desired because none of it looked right. It was just an overlay. It was like they put a slight mesh filter on everything to make it look like it was on a canvas. It was not exciting. It was not there. Character design-wise, very reminiscent of anime, Japanese manga. While there was a parent uniform, and it was described later in the storyline that the princess was her own choice to make everybody allowed to be an individual, I think it was simply because she didn't want to get out of her white dress and put on a uniform. While the uniform does carry through a lot of the characters, it's very loosely adapted, and I never felt like it was a true military unit, especially a special forces unit, which the Venergan unit is supposed to be. They are the anti-Valkyria squad, specifically designed to hunt the Valkyria. Now, I don't want to give away too much story for everybody. It is a story of many positions, mirrors a lot of history and things like that, propaganda, backroom dealings, things like that that occur. But they didn't waste any cost on CGI or cutscenes, that can be said. The voice acting was quite good, though, and the music was quite stunning, too. Even though after a while, some of the songs do get a little boring, I can't really complain too much about a decent soundtrack. As a whole, I found the game to be rather interesting at the beginning, enjoyable even, but as time went on and there was very little character development, the story was fairly shallow and unengaging, I found that the story and the game began to drag on. And this is why I ended up taking a three-day break in the middle of it, because it was quite boring at that stage. I was surrounded by multiple missions that have to be done. Now, the mission system, I guess, is the easiest way to state this. There's a map, and you have free missions. You can do those whenever. However, they affect nothing in the storyline short of leveling up and gaining Ragnite. There are battle missions, which are similar to the free missions, but affect trade and currency and value of things inside the stores, because you're a military unit, you have to pay for everything. And they try to sell that off as, well, everybody's got to pay for it because we're an impoverished country. I really kind of get bothered by this idea. It, You know, if you're a specialist military unit and the princess is part of it, I, I don't foresee you paying for much out of pocket. Now, one of the key things there, too, is that storyline just doesn't develop it goes on it's predictable what can i say i got bored and it drug on those battle missions while they're not required they do determine things in it and they just kept popping up i wanted to move on to a story mission no i had to stop and do these i'd complete one and then i'd complete the next one and then suddenly three more would pop up it got boring 
I feel that, like Fallout 4, perhaps it was just a way of filling in content because they didn't have much, and they knew it. Now, if you're really into the Valkyria Chronicles and Valkyria Revolution series, go ahead and get it. I got the special pre-order edition. came with a nice pin made out of metal with enameled, very high quality, as well as a disc of the soundtrack. Now, this isn't the total soundtrack. This is only a mix of the two CDs that were released for the Japanese soundtrack version. So, all in all, what can I say about this game? What is the rank? It was good at the start, but I'm going to have to give it somewhere around a 6 out of 10, maybe less. It wasn't the greatest, it wasn't the worst. It was just so-so. I guess I'm giving it a little bit higher than a 4 or 5 because really wasn't too many glitches that caused any problems within the game. There wasn't anything like that. It was simply mechanics, storyline, and art that just didn't sell it for me. Remember, if you got questions and comments, look us up at userfriendlyshow.com. Check us out at One User Friendly on Facebook and Twitter. Or look me up at Gothmoogle on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be right back. back. So it's been a while since I've been able to review something for Dungeons and Dragons. Today I have two. First one is Tales from the Yawning Portal. Now whereas most of the books that have been published by Wizards of the Coast for Dungeons and Dragons have been rule books or full-on campaigns, this is the first collection of adventures. Some of them dating back to the era before Advanced Dungeons and Dragons first edition. Now why is this book great? Because it offers a lot. It offers seven adventures including the iconic Sunless Citadel and Tomb of Horrors. Tomb of Horrors, of course, recently became a competitive sport at GaryCon this year, and I'm looking forward to seeing if this will be a trend for future conventions and ideas, as I've always tried to find a competitive sport for myself to enjoy. Playing Dungeons & Dragons competitively, based on scoring and time, might be an interesting idea. I'll keep you in touch if that becomes a thing. Going back, of course, to Yawning Portal... What is the Yawning Portal? Why does this connect to these seven adventures? For those who have played in Forgotten Realms, like myself, and know the city of Waterdeep, the Yawning Portal is an important bar. Or I guess you should say tavern and inn. I don't think there is any just straight bars in Dungeons & Dragons anymore. Maybe there is. The Yawning Portal has some history given here. Who owns it? Who runs it? Why it was made? But this is a tool. And there are other options, too, and I'll get to those. But this is a tool to give you a starting place. Many a great adventure in Dungeons and Dragons had begun at a tavern, and this offers up tools as to things that are hanging on the walls to flesh out this place. The denizens that meet here, that populate it, and even a wonderful table of who approaches the party, or who does the party approach. Now being a DM myself, I appreciate tools. Having players that sometimes don't know what to do or where they want to go, it's nice to have these tables, and it's nice to have a little less prep work to do. Now, of course, I'm one of those DMs that believes prep work is making sure I've put all the right books in the right bag before I head out. Now, there are some DMs that definitely do put a lot of time into their stories and ideas, but I like to just have a little bit of framework and let the players go where they go. And that's what's good about these. A book like this is also handy if you're in a campaign or something and you need a break. From the main campaign you know your players are tired of this or that or maybe you're at a 
break in the game yourself and you have no idea where to go. You know, a big event has occurred. You've defeated the boss of an area and, well, now what do I do? Gives you a little extra time. You just grab this off of your library, look at it and go, well, this little adventure will work perfectly well for this and throw them in. Maybe your players want to try something, you know, a little bit off of canon for them. Maybe they want to see if they can survive Tomb of Horrors, or any of these adventures for that matter. Now, of course, some of the benefits here, too, is we've had decades of preparation on these for people redoing them for every edition, players. Well, how do you deal with a player who's played some of these before? Well, Wizards of the Coast and the wonderful authors and people who work on this book put in a lot of work to come up with new riddles, new ways to say things, ways to mess with those old school players that know every trick and turn, every trap, every magic spell, everything. This is good. Now, of course, as a benefit, because these adventures range from level 1 to beyond 15, there is an actual possibility in here that outlines a way to run this as a campaign. So perhaps you want to try something with some difference. You know, your players want to bounce around the world. They want to try different places. They don't want just some simple things. They want their adventuring career. You can play this as an advent as a full campaign. Now, of course, it also offers up things like a few added bestiary entries in the back, some new magic items, some NPC monster stats, things like that. So go ahead and pick up a copy of Tales from the Yawning Portal you haven't already. Also in its later stages, being produced by Wizards of the Coast, is Dungeons & Dragons Beyond. This is an online application that allows you to put in character sheets, look up rules, things like that. Now again, this is in its beta stages. I was there in beta stage phase one, where it was just mostly the race options and a few other things. My biggest issue so far, and please understand again, this is in beta stage. I'm sure that more and more will be added as time progresses and they get towards the final project and its final release, was a lack of all of the information. Now I can understand why they're doing this as a free service, you know, they don't want to give away their game entirely for free, but when you're going in and trying to see if it works well with characters you understand, you know, make your own character that you already have on pen and paper and see if it works out in the numbers, it does get a little complicated that way because you don't have all the options. Now as we're into phases two and three, it's fleshing out more, allowing you to make character sheets, things like that. And of course the options problem is being an issue that way. I was not able to recreate some of the characters I have made to check the math and things like that. But I can see from making a generic set of the characters with the options available that it is going to be a very good tool. Now this is of course going to be a benefit for people that allow technology at their table, benefit for DMs that use a laptop or a tablet for their own work, as they may be able to look at their players' sheets and things like that, and of course for people who play online, such as Roll20. This will allow them to keep things isolated down and just make things simpler. Of course, storage of your characters and able to log on and, oh, I forgot my character sheet, uh, we'll log on and print one off. That's going to be a benefit for a lot of people, too. Now, of course, I store all of mine on a thumb drive and on Google Drive myself, just in case I ever forgot somebody's character sheet, as I tend to be the DM, and they ha half of them hand it to me, and the other half take theirs with them. But I think it's a good idea that way. Now, of course, if you're a DM like myself, too, where the only reason you have a phone on the game table or any kind of technology is to be sure that you're only looking up reference material. You know, one of my players uses it for Spellbook. Uh, we do have to keep 
my co-host Bill Sickens, he usually has to keep his phone with him because who knows when CBS is going to call us. But that's the case with that. But I try to keep as minimal technology as possible. I don't use a laptop on the table. Sometimes I use my phone for a calculator until I found one of my old calculators and took it. Not that I need it, but every now and then uh, got to calculate out treasures and stuff like that. But I can see where D&D Beyond is going to be a very good tool for people. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, it is, of course, still in free beta testing. Look it out at D&D Beyond. Uh, check it out through the Wizard of the Coast website for Dungeons & Dragons. They're going to be supposedly adding a lot of the information from the campaign modules and giving tools for DMs to manage and maintain their record keeping on multiple campaigns and things like that. Add in homebrew rules, things like that as well. So nobody is completely left out if they have rules that are different or changed from those in the written material. So I'm really looking forward to seeing where this end product is. Now, I personally am expecting it probably is going to have a little bit of a fee. I don't know if this will be a monthly or a yearly, or maybe they'll have two different versions, a free version for some people and a pay version for others. This seems to be a common thing across the board. Predominantly just, you know, their upkeep and maintenance of their servers. So we can't really complain too much about that. But it may be also a cost-effective thing for other players, being that, you know, the average book cost is X amount. It may be cheaper to get a subscription to this and have access to the books online if they are going to be available. This will of course make it easier, more mobile, and cut down on the amount of back strain from the pile of books. Now of course me, like I said, I don't like technology at my table, so I'm going to keep packing my books. So, go check it out, and that's D&D Beyond. Remember, questions, comments, concerns, hit us up at userfriendlyshow.com. Check us out on Facebook and Twitter at OneUserFriendly. Hit me up at GothMoogle on Facebook and Twitter. And until next time, keep gaming. UserFriendly is copyright 2017. UserFriendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Music used under license. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of UserFriendly Media Group, Inc. or this station.